Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.38 a.m. Central Pacific Time. It is the 24th of August, 2022, and this is episode 606 of Bitcoin. And let's start with the Apostles' Creed, or at least the Apostolic Creed for Bitcoin, written by Acerus and printed in the volume 18, uh, July 21st edition of Citadel 21. I believe in Satoshi Nakamoto, the father of blockchain, creator of the hardest money. I believe in Bitcoin, his only creation, conceived in the Great Recession, born of the virgin rationality, suffered under the fork wars, was declared dead hundreds of times, and descended into unrelenting bear markets. On the third, having rose again from the dip and ascended to global reserve. I believe in the anonymous hodlers, the holy main chain, the primacy of proof of work, the communion of nodes, the forgiveness of shitcoinery, and the resurrection of honest values, freedom, and truth everlasting. Hodeluja. <laughs> it's no wonder we get accused all the time for being some kind of religious zealots, being in, you know, especially Bitcoin maximalists. We're always being accused of just looking at Bitcoin as a religion. And in a way, I guess that. I, I can understand why people see that, but if you've been, you know, if you've been in the, been in the weeds for a while, you know, it's sort of tongue in cheek, but there's some truth there. Why? Well, I'm not actually going to elevate Bitcoin to any kind of quote unquote religion. But one of the things that you saw in, after the invention of the printing press, which itself like Bitcoin was more of a conglomeration of a couple of different kinds of technologies are already existing to make this thing that would print Bibles so that, you know, the masses or more of the masses could afford to read the word of God and didn't have to spend a whole shit ton of their money for a, get this, hand copied, written out version of the Old and New Testaments by a Franciscan monk or some, that's the way that they were done. It wasn't just Franciscan monks. It was like, that was, but that was a monk's job. One of the, a lot of the monasteries, one of the things that they did is they hand copied Bibles because they didn't have a printing press. Right after that, you get the enlightenment and there was a lot of religious fervor going on. Why? Because I think it was because as humans came into this, new understanding of the world that they lived in. Science was coming up, kind of. We knew more. We were able to ingest, you know, much larger amounts of information. That's going to do something to you. And their parents and, well, them were going through it at the time, probably didn't notice. Their parents certainly didn't see anything like that, right? Their grandparents didn't. Their great-grandparents and the great 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 grandparents they didn't see anything like the enlightenment. 
They didn't, didn't, weren't living through those times. And here we are, centuries later, doing the exact same thing. Only this time, instead of raw information, it's a specific type of information of truth, of money. And our parents never saw this, and their parents never saw it, and great-grandparents never saw it, and the great-great-great-great-grandparents never saw it. The last time anybody saw this was pretty much the Enlightenment. So it's no wonder that we as Bitcoiners and the people that are slowly coming into the fold are reaching for things that we can't see. Now, I'm not going to attach a religious fervor to Bitcoin. I'm just not going to do it. I do believe in God. I do have a tendency to think that possibly the divine has given us something because he's just tired of the hairless fucking apes bashing each other around with sticks. Maybe he's just got woke up and go, oh God, really? You're, you're still here? And well, we're still here because we're, humanity hasn't even remotely reached anywhere close to its potential because we, we're in this mire of bullshit. So the whole, re, you know, Bitcoiners are turning it into a religion thing. I, it, you should take that as tongue in cheek, but there's, there's a thread of truth through it, not because it's divine, not because it's a third incarnation of Jesus or some shit like that. No, it's because of the times that we live in. We've, we're going through something that's, that's ideologically special. It's something we've never seen before. So there's your morning prayer. Let's get into how Tether is basically given the United States government and pretty much everybody else the finger. Um, Tether holds firm on decision not to freeze tornado cash addresses, awaits law enforcement instruction. Gee, I wonder what that instruction is going to be. This is actually from Tether.to. This is their, uh, I guess their blog post and, and uh, specific announcement about this. This came out this morning. Uh, unilateral freezing secondary market addresses could be a highly disruptive and reckless move by Tether. Even if Tether recognizes suspicious activities on such an address, completing a freeze without the verified instruction of law enforcement and other government agencies might interfere with ongoing and sophisticated law enforcement investigations. In fact, in our dealings with law enforcement, we are sometimes made aware of addresses potentially related to crime and are specifically instructed not to freeze the addresses without the explicit request from law enforcement, as this could alert suspects of the law enforcement investigation, cause liquidations or abandonment of funds, and jeopardize further connections that might have been established. Oh, I see the game they're playing here. Nice one. Nice. Tether has not been contacted by U.S. officials or law enforcement with a request to freeze the addresses sanctioned by OFAC. But as noted above, Tether normally complies with requests from U.S. authorities, being in contact with them almost on a daily basis. For example, we have been cooperating on various freezes with U.S. law enforcement, including in the last two weeks after the OFAC public disclosure about tornado cash and no specific request has been put to us related to freezing relevant tornado cash addresses. We would expect the same process of detailed communications and coordinations even in this case. It is also worth mentioning that Tether is not, not a U.S. person, does not operate in the United States or onboard U.S. persons as customers. However, Tether does consider OFAC sanctions as part of its world-class compliance system. 
We'd like to note that other digital asset providers, for example, Paxos, a New York regulated stablecoin that issues BUSD and USDP, and accounting for $20 billion of the total cryptocurrency market capitalization, also haven't frozen Tornado Cash wallets. We believe that, if made without instructions from U.S. authorities, the move by USDC to blacklist Tornado Cash smart contracts was premature and might have jeopardized the work of other regulators and law enforcement agencies around the world. It should also be noted that DAI, D-A-I, an algorithmic stablecoin that accounts for 36% of its reverses in USDC, which is around $3.4 billion USD, also didn't proceed with any freeze. All right, that's the end of their official statement. And if you don't know what it is that they're doing, they're playing the United States authorities against OFAC. That's not going to last, guys, Just, but it is funny to watch them do it. Basically, what they're saying is, oh, oh, but the U.S. authorities would, you know, they haven't actually told us to do anything, and we don't want to jeopardize their shit. So we're not going to do a fucking thing until we're instructed by the United States to do something. And that's going to have to be in written form. It's going to have to be signed by every regulator and possibly a couple of federal judges. I don't know. But these, but Tether is basically kind of giving the finger to OFAC and the United States authorities. But in so doing, they're, look, they're pretending to play nice with the U.S. authorities. Basically, it's just a stall maneuver. They are going to be told what to do If you are using Tether, understand that as time goes on, the more you use it, the more dependent upon United States regulations you're going to be. And we're going to be right back to where we are right now. Again, I don't use Tether. I don't use USDC. I don't need them. I don't trade. And I don't need a stable. I just don't need a stable coin. So that's the extent of my knowledge about how to use it. But it seems pretty clear the writing on the wall is telling us where everything is going. Now, <clears throat> Singapore court greenlights inquiry into three, hour, three arrows capital finances as per a report. This is one of the only decent news articles out of decrypt.co. You heard my rant about that yesterday. Uh, so I decided to go ahead and include it today. The Singapore High Court on Monday approved a petition from advisory form Taneo to recognize the liquidation order issued to crypto hedge fund Three Arrows Capital or 3AC, according to a Bloomberg report citing unnamed people with knowledge of the matter. Taneo, which was appointed by a British Virgin Islands court to liquidate 3AC back in June, lacked the legal basis to request access to any financial records the funds kept locally. With the petition granted, the liquidators are now free to do that. This means Taneo will be able to investigate what assets are held in Singapore, including bank accounts, properties, cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens, and stake in companies that can be tied back to Three Arrows Capital. A spokesperson for the Singapore High Court declined to comment. Over the past few years, Three Arrows Capital has established itself as one of the larger names in the crypto industry, holding positions In many of the largest projects and companies, the Singapore-based firm filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy at the end of June following a wave of liquidations that swept across the sector in the wake of the Terra ecosystem collapse in May and the bankruptcy of crypto broker Voyager, which had unpaid loans to 3AC totaling $646 million U.S. As per a Bloomberg 
an earlier Bloomberg report, Taneo has so far gained control of at least 40 million of Three Arrows assets. This, however, represents only a tiny fraction of the 3.5 billion with a B dollars the firm owes to 25 different companies, including 2.3 billion to crypto trading and lending firm company, or sorry, lending company Genesis. Last month, the lawyers for Taneo also said Three Arrows or Three Arrow co-founders uh, Suzu and Kyle Davies hadn't been cooperating on the process. However, the hedge fund hit back at those claims, adding that both Zhu and Davies and their families received threats of physical violence. I don't, I don't, of course they were going to, to receive threats of physical violence. They ripped everybody off, but that's not an excuse not to cooperate. If you're basically having a gun held to your head to cooperate, I'm, I don't, I don't just, it just, that's kind of confusing. We didn't cooperate because we had threats of physical violence. Well, okay, then whatever. On July the 12th, Zoo took to Twitter to post screenshots of emails from Advocatus or Advocatus Legal LLP, the law firm acting on behalf of 3AC, sent to legal representatives of Taneo. One of those letters accused the liquidators of baiting both Sue and Davies. And that's the end of the article. So that's an, in, uh, an interesting way to end the article. Uh, baiting with what? Baiting them to do what? This entire thing is so, is, is ridiculous. And it's not going to be the last time, y'all. You're, I know there's some of you out there that are thinking, surely they're going to have learned their lesson and the next cycle, uh, we're not going to repeat this. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, yes, we are. The people that missed out on their millions and billions of dollars of grift this time around are going to do it next time around. And right now what they're doing is they're planning on it. They've got, I, I guarantee it, they're, they're sitting around tables talking about their marketing scheme. The, even the color scheme of their new websites is basically going to sucker people in just like they've done three times before. It's going to happen again. You need to be prepared. And this is why Bitcoin maximalism is so very important. You've got to listen to us. If, if you're thinking that you're going to get 100x on some shitcoin around in the next cycle, you will, but only if you know when to sell. And that's the trick, is that the game is rigged against you on all of the shitcoins. The only real truth here is TikTok, next block, scaling. Let's talk about scaling problems for Lightning Labs Tarot on the Bitcoin blockchain. This is out of Bitcoin Magazine, written by Evan Price. Um, Tarot is a new product protocol being developed at Lightning Labs that promises to enable creation and transfer of digital assets on the Bitcoin blockchain and specifically on the Lightning Network. It is being hailed as a revolutionary advance in cryptocurrency tokenization. I am skeptical of any proposal aiming to transfer non-Bitcoin tokens on the Bitcoin network, but Bitcoin is a permissionless network, and if Tarot fans are intent on building and deploying it, no one can stop them. This is the magic of Bitcoin. It is a truly neutral arbiter. Bitcoin only enforces the protocol rules. It does not pass judgment on how those rules are used. Tarot's design is clever. It hides a data structure called a sparse Merkle sum tree inside of the taproot script path, which is itself a Merkle tree that lives inside every taproot address. It's Merkle trees all the way down. However, I believe this design places a fundamental limitation on the scale that can be achieved with any asset 
issued using the Tarot protocol. The crux of the problem is that every time a Tarot asset is issued or transferred, it must happen inside a Bitcoin transaction that will eventually be committed to the blockchain. Bitcoin's block space is intentionally limited in order to minimize the resources required to run a Bitcoin node. This keeps the network decentralized and is fundamental, a fundamental pillar of the Bitcoin security model. Block space must be scarce in order for Bitcoin to remain secure. I believe that any protocol that requires a Bitcoin transaction to move another asset will be inherently limited by the block space market. We are currently in a period of persistently low fees, so these protocols should work fine for now. But if Bitcoin use spreads to most of humanity, as I believe that it will, this low fee period will be definitely over. As the fee market grows, the cost of Bitcoin transactions will become increasingly high. When this happens, all other assets will be priced out of the Bitcoin blockchain. In the long run, successful monetary assets will be better served on a single purpose blockchain or even better, a non-blockchain database where fees will be lower and transactions will be more affordable. A lot of hype around Tarot is focused on its use of lightning channels. I have many concerns about the complexities involved in this design, but let's assume everything works as intended. This will scale the protocol beyond what is possible exclusively with on-chain transactions, but I don't believe this will reduce total on-chain transactions for two reasons. One, Lightning is optimized for small value transactions. This is because the value of a Lightning transaction is limited by the amount of liquidity committed to Lightning channels. On-chain Bitcoin transactions have an unlimited maximum value and are usually a better choice for large transfers of wealth. Second, or number two, sorry, moving small value transactions onto Lightning network won't decrease the congestion in the long run due to induced demand. People will consume the additional capacity until a new equilibrium is reached. The equilibrium is determined by how much congestion people are willing to tolerate. On a blockchain, congestion equates to fees. This phenomenon is not exclusive to Bitcoin. It applies to any blockchain that integrates with the Lightning Network, such as a Lightning or Blockstream's liquid sidechain. If Tarot is deployed and used, it will increase Bitcoin fees. Paradoxically, this decreases the utility of Tarot. This negative feedback loop will limit the scale that Tarot assets can achieve in the short term. In the long term, as people flee weak currencies for the safe haven of the strongest currency, Bitcoin, the fee market will organically grow from native Bitcoin use. At this point, the writing is on the wall for monetary assets issued on Tarot. Another use case for tarot is NFTs, God forbid. Side note, Lightning Labs carefully avoids the term NFT in their official communications, but I struggle to find an alternative meaning for the phrase unique and non-unique assets as well as collections. I have my issues with NFTs, as many Bitcoiners do, but their existence and use is undeniable. They are here to stay. Yeah, it's a shame, but they are. NFTs may see some traction on tarot, but I'm not convinced the Bitcoin is good for existing NFT use cases. Do you really need unstoppable censorship resistant displays of conspicuous consumption? In any case, I think some NFTs might find a niche on Bitcoin using the tarot protocol. NFTs are designed to benefit from artificial scarcity, so I don't believe that they will be sensitive to high prices caused by the growth of the fee market. It's likely that once they gain a foothold, 
on the Bitcoin blockchain, they will become very difficult to dislodge to the detriment of users of the Bitcoin asset. I don't mean to give the impression that Tarot is worthless. In fact, I think it may end up being a tool that supercharges Bitcoin and Lightning use all over the world, not just in the way most maximalists dream about. The name is a subtle hint at the goal of the protocol. Taro is a popular root vegetable and staple food across large swaths of Africa, Asia, and the Pacific Islands. Stablecoins are the most popularly used cryptocurrencies the world over. Stablecoins marry the speed and borderless nature of cryptocurrencies with the most popular unit of account in the world, the dollar. Many stablecoins are designed to operate on a multitude of blockchains and Taro seems poised to open the gate for stablecoin use on Bitcoin. This increased reliability and security of Bitcoin will only improve the value proposition of these coins. I believe this will be a bootstrapping phase in the transition from the old global currency, the dollar, to the new global currency, Bitcoin. What is not clear at all to me is how carrying stablecoins over Bitcoin rails will incentivize more of the world's population to use the most trustless, decentralized, secure, and inflation-proof money ever invented. Uh, that reminds me of everything that I was saying yesterday, you know, because if we allow Bitcoin to just turn into some kind of network of rails, then what happens to the token of value that is used to secure those rails? He shares, he shares a lot of different views about tarot than I do, but he shares the same view that I have as to, I'm not sure this is the best thing in the world. I like this guy. I am rather excited to see what, what happens with tarot as a technology. But when you've got, when, what we've learned out of Bitcoin, at least, if we haven't learned anything else, the one thing that we have learned is that when you introduce a free open source software that is, has this kind of utility, is open-ended to the point where anybody can dream up anything they want. And if they can code it and get it into Bitcoin, either at the base layer or on a layer two, then the sky's the limit of how much humanity you can drop into or on the Bitcoin blockchain. What I mean by humanity, I, I don't mean, oh, the humanity, like, you know, the blimp falling out of the sky. No, 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 no. I mean, our evils, our goods, our wants, our fears. All of that is humanity and more. Our lusts, our greed, our gluttony, the seven deadly sins, and then all the good shit that we've done, the brilliance, the, the dreaming, all of it, all of it is going to layer itself onto the Bitcoin blockchain, and some of those might even pass. And indeed, if you actually look at what Bitcoin does in the incentive structures, humanity built that. Some of our humanity is already at the base layer. But as we start putting, are we going to put more of the negative of humanity than the positive? If it's not balanced out, we're, we're, we're riding a train to uncertainty. If we at least balance it, balance the evil of humanity that is inserted into Bitcoin or on Bitcoin with the good of humanity, of which there is, it does exist, it just doesn't look like it right now. I think that that's the better way to go. But we're th what I'm talking about a 30,000 foot view of Bitcoin, not, not the technicals, right? How does that work? 
Are we, I mean, all I've seen in the cryptocurrency quote unquote industry is fucking greed, ignorance, stupidity. And that's pretty much it. I mean, 99.99% of quote crypto is just terrible humanity reeling its ugly head and 0.01% of all this is Bitcoin. We've known this since 2017 when we saw all the ICOs come out. We've got to keep understanding that this is an adversarial environment and that just because somebody like Elizabeth Stark and Rose Beef out of Lightning Labs introduces tarot doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fix all of our little red wagons. In fact, they may pull the wheels off of some of those little red wagons. So just keep that attitude in the back of your head and and remain adversarial. How can this screw us? Rather than, that should be the first question. And then it's like, how can this elevate us? So let's move on to crypto mining. Uh, Crypto mining can benefit Texas energy industry as per the comptroller's office. Now, now the comptroller of Texas is getting in on this. Let's see what uh, comptroller of Texas says via Arjit Sarkar and Cointelegraph. The United States filled in the wide gap in Bitcoin mining that was left open by China at the end of June 2021. Despite looming rumors of high power consumption, officials in Texas, one of the fastest growing crypto mining hubs in the United States, now believe that mining operations can, in fact, garner a symbiotic relationship with the energy industry. A newsletter from the Texas Comptroller's Office reveals the state's pro-crypto stance with the intent to host long-term miners and operators. Clarifying the general misconception about Bitcoin's energy usage, the fiscal note highlighted that unlike manufacturing facilities or industrial chemical plants, which can be expected to be around for decades, cryptocurrency mining facilities do not place big electrical demands on the grid. With greater crypto miners moving into Texas, concerns around power demand remain as the sudden surge threatens to disturb the balance between supply and demand. While other power-hungry industries often continue production amid market fluctuations, one of the concerns raised by the newsletters by Texas-based research associate Joshua Rhodes was, quote, The difference is that Bitcoin mines and mining facilities can come in so fast and may be gone so fast depending on the price of Bitcoin, end quote. Given the unique positioning of the crypto mining market, Texas officials believe miners can participate in demand response programs, which involve turning off miners' power during peak demand. This process is widely adopted by energy-intensive industries such as petrochemical plants. Moreover, the study envisioned that increased mining operations could spur additional energy infrastructure, especially in remote areas of West Texas. A prolonged bear market brought down mining revenue to record lows in June 2022. However, data from blockchain.com showed that BTC mining revenue jumped early, sorry, jumped nearly 69% in one month from 13.9 million on July the 13th to 23.48 million on August the 12th. In addition, lower mining equipment prices uh, have now allowed BTC miners to upgrade and expand their mining rigs as they pursue mining the last 2 million BTC. And I skipped over this because this is just, I don't know what Arjit was thinking, but it actually says, in addition, lower mining equipment, GPU prices, 
have now allowed BTC miners to upgrade. Um, in case you don't know, we, Bitcoin hasn't been mined off of GPUs since 2011. Right? We went almost immediately to from CPU. There was a sliver of window for GPU mining, and then it all went to ASICs. Uh, so I I don't know what Arjit's trying to say there because that's it should just say lower mining equipment prices ASIC. I, anyway, so there's a little mistake there. Uh, let's see what this one is about. Bitcoin Magazine again. How Starlink changes Bitcoin mining and improves decentralization. El Sultan Bitcoin writing for Bitcoin Magazine. Over a year has elapsed since the great Bitcoin mining migration began when the network experienced a 60% plus reduction in hash rate due to the Chinese Communist Party's attack on Bitcoin mining. The aftermath of China's mining ban equated to the United States absorbing a huge part of the hash power that used to be located on mainland China. Hash rate recovered and reached all-time highs again. No questions arise regarding Bitcoin's resilience here. However, one may ask how networks and mining decentralization can be fostered to limit the impact of similar attacks upon Bitcoin. Even though mining is an activity spread across the globe, miners flock to locations based mainly on energy costs. As covered by Nick Carter, energy is a local phenomenon. Highly concentrated energy production sites are typically located in remote areas, Quebec, Canada, and Sichuan, China, uh, are both great examples of this. Here, the installed hydro capacity exceeds the demand for electricity, and since energy is not an easily transportable commodity, producers with excess capacity find themselves wishing for alternative buyers or assuming wasted energy from their operations. In essence, this is why wasted energy is a miner's platonic love. Under the form of a jurisdiction-neutral bidder, Bitcoin miners can be buyers of last resort to monetize stranded energy. However empowering the topic may sound, in practice, trying to tap into low-cost energy-rich sites often implies having to run at-scale mining operations, and when talking about remote locations, internet connectivity is a whole other issue. For a multi-million dollar mining farm, accessing a corporate internet satellite service won't be much of a problem, as the size of their revenues would make such connectivity costs appear minimal on their income statements. In contrast, this leaves the likelihood of the average Joe living close to stranded energy locations out of the equation. Individual connectedness to the internet has reached 60% of the global population. This implies that there are now fewer than 3 billion people unconnected to the internet, with the majority of these people located in Southern and Eastern Asia and in Africa. Improving the quality and reliance of people's connectivity is also an unresolved issue. Enter Starlink. Led by SpaceX, Starlink is aiming to provide high-speed, low-latency broadband internet in remote and rural locations across the globe. By leveraging SpaceX's experience in building rockets and spacecraft, their mission is to deploy the world's most advanced broadband internet system. The hardware costs to set up a Starlink access point are hovering around $600 in addition to $3,000 per month. Even though the expense can be considered elevated for the average person, envisioning how this can impact Bitcoin brings up interesting theories. Dude, I'm not sure if $3,000 a month is correct here, but... Okay, let's just move on. Picturing miners subsidizing Starlink costs in rural areas in order to tap into stranded energy while enabling internet connectivity may not be that far away, considering we have a Bitcoin miner powering greenhouses in the Netherlands. 
If wasted heat generation is subsidized to grow produce and bloom flowers in one place, the same may be true for enabling internet-based services in unconnected areas in exchange for newly minted Bitcoin. How this could also play out a, or sorry, how this could also play out a role in reducing internet service provider centralization of the network may also be of interest. As reported by DARPA's Our Blockchain's Decentralized paper, for at least the past five years, 60% of all Bitcoin traffic has traversed just three ISPs. Moreover, as of July 2021, about half of all public Bitcoin nodes were operating from IP addresses in German, French, and U.S. Uh, places, the top four of which are hosting providers, Hertzner, OVH, DigitalOcean, and Amazon's AWS. On the flip side, community-based approaches seem to be proliferating within the Bitcoin ecosystem to reduce centralization, with projects like Fediment looking to accelerate custody decentralization and home mining setups catching interest in recent years, one may ask, is Starlink well on its way to become one of the enablers for last mile Bitcoin mining and network decentralization? That remains to be seen. All right. Where's the danger here? I know, I know. Fear mongering, fear mongering. You're fudding, you're fudding. No, this is not fudding. Adversarial thinking is not fudding. I'm simply asking the question, what happens when Elon Musk, or God forbid, if Elon Musk is dead in 10 years, his uh, successor, gets a letter from the FCC saying, you know what? We really don't like Bitcoin and you're going to, you're going to throttle that and, and try to kill it on your Starlink system. If you're dependent upon one way and one way only to get your mining signal out to the network and receive signal back, then you're just begging to be taken off the network. You need at least one redundant, if not two redundant ways to do that. And I still think, I still think there's a lot of room for thought in radio transmission of Bitcoin block information because the block information is pretty light. And we, if we keep it that way, if we don't get into that big block mentality, which is always looming on the horizon, then we could always potentially use radio. Ever since the internet came out, nobody has really studied what else we can do with radio except possibly astronomers but they're more or less just trying to receive broadband information from the skies what about compression what is what can we do with radio that hasn't been done with radio yet to be the ultimate redundant factor in bitcoin mining i don't know but Let's run the numbers. You can ponder that shit later. CNBC futures and commodities. OPEC defended 90. Doing it again today. Oil 94. 54. That's West Texas Intermediate. After a 0.89% increase to the upside, Brent North Sea just peaking over $100 a barrel after a three-quarter of a point increase. Natural gas up one and a half to $9.33 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline down 4.71%. Wow, to $2.79. Oh, by the way, our strategic petroleum reserves has hit a 35-year low. So for the cost of a couple of points bump in Biden's, you know, the Biden administration's approval rating, 
uh, we've sucked down, you know, most of our strategic petroleum reserves. Just, just saying. I hate them all. It's, it doesn't matter. Biden, Bush, Clinton. I, I, I honestly don't give a shit. I, they all suck. Metals, gold up almost nothing. Uh, Seventeen hundred and sixty-two bucks. Silver is down a half. Platinum is up 1.13. Copper is up 1.52. Palladium up two and a half. Oh, kind of a little bit of a recovery on that one. Uh, what do we got for agriculture? Wheat up 0.1, or sorry, 0.41%. The biggest winner is coffee, which is up five. Wow, over 5%. Cotton is up one and a half. We've got Dow up scant 0.08, uh, S&P up scant, NASDAQ is up a third of a point, and the S&P mini is up a third of a point as well. Real money priced at $21,614, 255,000 transactions the last two, uh, 24 hours, that's 10,600 transactions every hour with, thank God I'm seeing these numbers again, even though we are at a lower price, I was getting really bored with watching, you know, point zero point four million, you know, 600,000 in 24 hours of BTC being passed. Today, yesterday it was four and a half or something like that. Today it's three and a half million BTC changing hands in the last 24 hours. That's 150 Bitcoin, 150,000 Bitcoin every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of 13.79 BTC and a median transaction value of 0.023 BTC or just under 500 bucks and block times are hideously low. Eight minutes and 19 seconds, 0.06 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 10 and a quarter BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. And with an 8.9% increase in hash rate, we're, we're, we're up to 234.6 exahashes per second. At these prices, I wonder why all the mining has come online. You might want to ask yourself that question. Now, Clark Moody's dashboard, 6,700 transactions are waiting on five blocks to clear. We've got a four point, nope, $414.8 billion market cap, which is 3.58% of gold's entire market cap. And if you so choose, you may purchase 12.4 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,130,685.92 of and 4,561.7 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $98.9 million uh, with 17,175 nodes sporting 85,224 payment channels and 71.7% of all of that is being run over the Tor Network. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Ethereum merge in trouble? Developers find bugs ahead of the planned update. Ezra Raguera has it for Cointelegraph, but I don't think he's got all of it. You'll understand why here in a second. Ethereum developer Peter Zlazgi, however you pronounce it, announced that there was a bug that resulted in data loss in the latest release. While the upcoming ETH merge is one of the most anticipated events in the crypto community at the moment, it's not free from hiccups. However, Ethereum developers are quick to respond to the issues that arise. Peter, an Ethereum software developer, has announced on Twitter that they have found a regression that results in a corrupted state. He explained 
that it was probably one of the pull requests that had merged toward the new storage model or online pruner. In a later update, the developer highlighted that the problem will likely affect those who are running the release in terms of corrupting their database and resulting in the loss of data. He added that the issue of data loss happens on shutdown, and this is why their tests were unable to catch the bug. Well, we're going to return to that, I promise. Despite the issues, the developers were able to provide a fix after one single day. Go Ethereum released a hot fix to patch the bug. The team advised those who've updated to roll back and rerun to see if everything is working fine. They tweeted, quote, We've just released Geth v1-10-23, a hotfix to patch a state corruption in 1-10-22. If you've already updated to 22, you'll have to roll back your chain and rerun the last two days to ensure everything is okay. More in the release notes. All right. I really believe that a lot of this was glossed over. Um, this is actually, in my opinion... Working with computers as long as I have, uh, built, you know, especially building you know, disk images for you know, three laboratories at a tier one research university, when I'm building those images, I, I, I don't just load the software all at once. Oh no, no, I begin like with the operating system. And after it's done and has gone through all of its reboots that it self reboots off of, I reboot it again. And that's before I load anything. What's the next thing that comes in? .NET. I load .NET in to make sure, to make sure that the package that installed, like, because we worked, I worked with Windows. I know you hate it. I, I, I'm not a fan of it, but that's what we worked with. .NET came next to make sure that all that stuff was nice and, and neat and that it had everything that it needed. And what did I do? I rebooted the computer. Why? to make sure that there wasn't something jacked up. Every single software package after that and a few other, you know, a few, before I even started the software updates, I would load in all kinds of stuff that was basically just utility. And after every package that I loaded, I would reboot the computer to make sure that it took and that there wasn't a corruption or there wasn't an error or there wasn't, some kind of weirdness going on. I would, I would look at the boot up time to make sure that it wasn't lagging. And then I would install stuff like the Adobe suite, you know, all of, uh, all of Autodesk. And when I would install Adobe suite, it was after every package, I would reboot the computer. There's twin, there was 20, actually there were 32 separate packages in the Autodesk suite and I would install them one by one, and every single time I would reboot the computer. So what does Peter himself have to say about this? Well, here's his original tweets that came out yesterday. And our latest release is Bort. Geth 1.10.22 contains a regression that caused the tree state to go bad. Most probably it's one of the PRs we've merged towards the new storage model, online pruner, pruner, trying to find and fix the issue. Now, here's the one that really caught my attention. We might have found the issue, which if true, unfortunately means there's a high probability that anyone running the release will have their database fried. 
The fun, and fun is in quotes, the fun part about the issue is that data loss happens only on shutdown. So none of our test benchmarks caught it. Here I am trying to explain to you just the minimal steps that I would take to build a computer image that I'm going to deploy to over 50 different computers and they all have to be the exact same clone. And every single time that I did anything, I shut down the machine and actually I would power down the machine, not reboot it. I would power it all the way down. I would wait 30 seconds for all the capacitors on the motherboard to lose their charge. And then I would reboot it. And this is before I knew nothing about Bitcoin. This is just standard operating procedure when you're building a computer image. The fact that they were never actually testing a full shutdown on the nodes is eye-wateringly negligent from a computer science standpoint. I'm sorry, that's the way I feel about it. If you are, if you are so incompetent that you're not actually testing a full shutdown, then I don't know why you would ever trust this chain. I don't trust it for so many reasons. I would never trust it because of shit like this. If they can't remember to, oh, you know what? There's one thing we haven't tried. We haven't tried to reboot the node. Yeah, stay away from this shit, dudes. Stay as far away as you can. Researchers re-upload sanctioned tornado cache code on GitHub. <laughs> Crypto potato bringing it at you from Chianika Dika. That's really the person's name that wrote it. I, pro I butchered it. I know, whatever. The United States Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC's placement of popular crypto Tumblr tornado cash as an entity on this specific or specially designated nationals, or SDN sanction list, has raised many eyebrows. The subsequent removal of its source code from the Microsoft-owned GitHub, which also shut down the user accounts of three individuals who contributed code to the project, prompted an outcry from privacy and free speech advocates. While forks of the open source software have remained on GitHub, Matthew Green, a cryptography professor at Johns Hopkins University, this week published another fork of the software with the support of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. This is John Hopkins. Right? This is tier one research level shit. Okay. If you don't know what tier one level research institution means, it's just that's as high as you can go as far as how much grant money you're getting for research. And the more grant money you get sort of demonstrates that the research that you've done in the past is generally speaking, top notch. Now, clearly with Fauci and COVID and all that shit, there's some cracks that are showing in there. But generally speaking, a tier one university is about as, about as prestigious as you can get. And here we've got a professor from that university who's given the finger to the system and he's just pushing a fork of tornado cash, even though it's OFAC sanctioned. Ballers. Okay, Green and his EFF colleague, Kurt Opschall, were not happy with the removal of Tornado Cash's source code from GitHub and have argued that the hosting service had suppressed speech with the move. The main reason behind the re-uploading of the code is to test whether its removal is ever the appropriate response to sanctions. Opsal 
who happens to be ET or EFF's general counsel, argued that improvements and other contributions to this fork or any other are protected speech, and their publication cannot be constitutionally prohibited by the government under either standard of scrutiny. Green also expressed a similar sentiment and revealed that if GitHub disables it again, the advocacy organization plans to challenge that decision in court. In an explanatory note, the researcher wrote, quote, In my work as a researcher and instructor at Johns Hopkins, I've made extensive use of Tornado Cache and Tornado Nova sur- sur- uh, source code to teach concepts related to cryptocurrency, privacy, and zero-knowledge technology. The bone of contention is the lack of clarity of OFAC's order as it defines Tornado Cash as not just a technology, but also a sanctioned entity. The EFF argues that the name Tornado Cash in itself refers to different things, thereby creating ambiguity, ambiguity in what exactly is sanctioned. It, it is an underlying open source project that developed and published the code on GitHub. It also, it is also the name of this coin's mixing software that persists as a smart contract on the Ethereum network, etc. The scope of what OFAC means by Tornado Cash still hangs in limbo. And hence, the EFF has reached out to the Treasury Department, but has yet to receive any clarity at all. Meanwhile, the nonprofit crypto policy think tank Coin Center is also considering legal action against OFAC. Okay, look, I, I get it. It's Tornado Cash, which basically was, you know, Ethereum's Tumblr. And I'm not a fan of Ethereum. I've made that very clear, at least today, and if not today, over the past three years minimum. But my belief is that everything that OFAC did about this is wrong, not because I want to see Tornado Cash alive and thrive. I don't, I don't trust it because it's operating on the shittiest chain I've ever seen. But to throw, these, to throw the developer in jail, to sanction Tornado Cash without clarity on the entity description, and to remove Microsoft's decision to remove three developers just because they helped with the code, all of that is a shit show. And none of it is right. I can hate Ethereum until the world looks level, and it does not change this fact. Every single thing they did is unethical. It's immoral, and you should not accept it. Now, we are not the same. Or Ethereum, Etherheads, and Bitcoiners are not the same. We want different things. We believe in a completely different set of ethics when it comes to economy. We believe in a completely different set of morals when it comes to time, oh, time, oh, how I view time. What is it? The the time specifics, whatever. You know what I'm saying? It it just, everything about that was wrong. Okay. I'm not defending Ethereum, but I need to stand up and defend the people that got hosed, especially the dude that went to jail. He's still chill. He's still cooling his heels over there in Deutschland. Well, actually, Netherlands, not Deutschland, but the Dutch, the Dutch have him. They got him in a cell and he's going to stay in that cell. He's not getting out. So we've all got to kind of be careful here. And I, I saw a tweet by beauty on today. That's kind of disturbing me at beauty on, on Twitter. He's been one of my longest Bitcoin follows since I got into the space. 
he said something, he made a statement. He was like, I don't know, he started off, he was going and going and going. I don't have the tweet up, but in the middle of it, he said, and no developer is working on Bitcoin because they're scared to. I don't think that that's true, but let's say it is. Two things. Let's say all the developers stop working on Bitcoin Core. Okay. That means it's ossified. That means it's not going to change. And it's fine right now. Do we want a couple of other things? Maybe. Certainly the whole, what was it? There's a, a time, there's a clock bug that's coming up that needs to be hard forked. But that's like, that's, that's way away. All right. So let's say that's the last thing that they do. And they no, there's no more base layer changes except for fixing the clock. And then after that, all the developers just go away because they're terrified of OFAC. Fine. Fine. Two, and this goes for layer two development as well as Bitcoin base chain development. Make sure that you're pr doing privacy, privacy best practices, which most of the developers know a shit ton more than I do. Do it from a, I don't know, hack into like the, the, the university's Wi-Fi from across the street at a cafe. I don't know, but they'll figure it out. So beauty on statement that no, no developers working on Bitcoin right now, I think is factually false, but even if it was true, it ain't going to last. I don't let people make you believe that development on Bitcoin has stopped. And even if you do believe it, you can take a sigh of relief understanding that Bitcoin has now ossified. Now, Coinbase is hit with a $5 million lawsuit, can't imagine why, uh, over crashes and alleged securities violations. <laughs> Matt DeSalvo is writing it for Decrypt.co, the second decent uh, Decrypt article I saw today. A Coinbase customer is suing the San Francisco-based exchange for $5 million for failing to properly secure customer accounts and flouting federal securities law among other allegations. Yeah, you're my enemy until you're my friend, huh? The lawsuit filed last week and which represents over 100 people claims that the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S. locked users out of their accounts for extended periods of time, harming them financially. Well, duh. Filed in the United States District Court of Northern District of Georgia, Plaintiff George Catula also alleges that Coinbase didn't disclose that the crypto assets on its platform are securities, which boldly flouts federal and state laws. Quote, contrary to its representations, Coinbase does not properly employ standard practices to keep consumers' accounts secure, the lawsuit re reads, and Coinbase improperly and unreasonably locks out its consumers from accessing their accounts and funds, either for extended periods of time or permanently, end quote. The plaintiffs allege that the exchange cashed during crashed during times of market volatility, which does happen to crypto exchanges. Yeah, but it happens to Coinbase most, <laughs> making it difficult for the user to withdraw cash. Quote, Coinbase's user growth has outpaced its ability to provide the account services and protections that it promises to consumers, the lawsuit adds. The lawsuit further claims that the plaintiff's assets were vulnerable to theft. America's largest crypto exchange has been hit with a number of lawsuits from disgruntled customers lately. Earlier this month, the exchange asked the United States Supreme Court for an emergency intervention to send two recently filed lawsuits to arbitration. Meanwhile, 
The SEC is currently investigating the company for allowing U.S. residents to trade unregistered securities, according to a Bloomberg report back in late July. The news followed civil and federal charges filed against a former Coinbase product manager who is accused of operating an insider trading scheme in its compliant against, or sorry, I think they, yeah, in its complaint against the former Coinbase employee. The SEC claimed that the exchange currently lists several unregistered securities. Yeah, and Coinbase is working, they're, they're just, nobody gives shit. They're, you know, they, they'll, they'll, they'll raid Trump, but they won't send the FBI to Coinbase for God's sakes. Why don't they? Even if, even if you, even if you hate Trump, even if he's like the, the worst orange man that ever happened, you got to ask yourself the question, how come FBI and treasury isn't sending secret service and FBI agents into fucking Coinbase when they are stating that they are dealing in unregistered securities? Treasury should at least be involved. SEC should at least be involved, if not the FBI. But no, no, they're just, they do whatever the fuck they want, apparently. It, it, it doesn't matter. But let's end today's show on a positive note, shall we? Bitcoin Magazine, Sean Amick. Ripio launches prepaid card that pays 5% Bitcoin cash back in Brazil. Whoa, Ripio, a cryptocurrency service provider, has launched the prepaid Ripio card for Brazil in partnership with Visa, per a report from Portal do Bitcoin. Users of the Ripio card can receive up to 5% cash back in Bitcoin with any purchase. When the card is used, Ripio will automatically convert Bitcoin used for a purchase to the Brazilian, Brazilian real. This conversion allows the Visa network to process the transaction in fiat on behalf of Ripio, delivering reals to the merchant. Additionally, Bitcoin cashback is limited to 250 reals per month and will not be credited after October 31st. Furthermore, users of the Ripio card will be able to spend their Bitcoin anywhere across the world that supports Visa transactions without experiencing any fees. Yeah, not yet. Quote, the 5% cash back in BTC is an excellent yield tool for users and certainly far superior to the options offered by traditional financial institutions, said Sebastian Serrano, CEO of Ripio. Henrique Texiera, Ripio's global head of new business, expects 250,000 users will be leveraging the prepaid card by December of this year. Thus, in order to accomplish the necessary scale for the platform, I just said it once, I tried it again and failed, expects that the company will spend near 1.5 million reals on the new product. Ripio is joining a growing list of companies and institutions expanding Bitcoin offerings to Brazil as the country boasts a large number of Bitcoin investors. In fact, Brazil ranked 14th on a top 20 list of countries with the highest levels of cryptocurrency adoption, while also ranking fifth for total on-chain value sets. Thus, banking giants Santander and BTG Pactual, brokerage behemoth XP, and Warren Buffett-backed Nubank have all pushed to enter the growing ecosystem, among others. So Brazil, coming on up. And uh, I haven't mentioned it since I was off the air for two and a half months, but as, uh, if you've listened to the show before, you know this. If you're a new listener, here's my stance. I don't give shit one what the West does with Bitcoin. Whether they adopt it, whether they make it illegal, whether they try to blow it apart at the seams, it doesn't matter. The West is kind of done. 
just in general. I mean, we, we squandered our history. We squandered our present. We squandered our future on bullshit, you know, money printer go burr, endless wars in as far away as you can get for decades. Everything about America that made America great is just, we're just burning that candle at both ends, it seems. So I'm not interested in what the West does. I'm not interested in what the West thinks. I like living in the United States, but I'm pretty sure that we're kind of toast. I don't think we're going to get overrun with heathen scum any more than we already are. But I do believe that there are other places in the world to look for excitement. And Latin America and Africa and the Baltics and the Balkans and some of the smaller Eastern European countries and shit like Mongolia, that, that's what I'm looking at. Why? Because they got nowhere else to go but up. They got nowhere else to go but up. And Latin America is leading the charge. If you are not looking at what's going on in Latin America, you're going to miss out. And I'm not really just talking about investment potential, whether it's real estate or investing in, in Latin American companies. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at being able to be excited about watching a people that have been fucked for decades rise up and find themselves as competent, beautiful human beings. Latin America is one of the, is a, it is a hotbed to change from vile corruption to extreme morality and ethics if they're given the chance. Bitcoin gives them that chance. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Can't let you go without a joke. It is hump day after all. Dad says jokes. What's the difference between a literalist and a kleptomaniac? A literalist takes things literally. A kleptomaniac takes things Literally. Not the best dad joke, but a dad joke nonetheless. If you want to support the show, do so using Podcasting 2.0. Oh, I got boost. I, I got I got some boostograms. I got some. I got some. I'm gonna. I I I, I got to do it. Hold on. I'm getting there. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to hold on there, pal. Hold on. I I I, I hear you going. I hear you going. Boosts, boosts. Okay, I got one from yesterday's show. Uh, Chaka at C H A K A sent me 300 sats. Thank you, Chaka. I got one from a letter 6173. Again, a striper boost 7,777 Satoshis. Now, the big one 50,000 sats from Petar at P E T A R. Hot damn. I love this show. Aside from TFTC and RHR, do you listen to any other podcasts about Bitcoin? I recommend Talking in Bits, Bitcoin Audible, Bitcoin Dad Podcast, and Safedine Show for all you righteous maxis out there. Trigger warning, Bitcoin Dad is a lefty, but his Bitcoin coverage is top-notch, and he's a great dude in my opinion. Thank you, Pitar, for that boost. I do listen to TFTC and Rabbit Hole Recap. I also listen to Texas Slim's podcast. 
I listen to Bitcoin Audible. I've been doing so since it was actually uh, Cryptoconomy, I think was the original name of it. Um, and I used to listen to my first podcast. Okay, my first podcast that I ever started listening to in this space uh, was Trace Mayer's Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Trace Mayer subsequently, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, decided that he would take his reputation and put it into a brown paper bag and douse it with diesel and light it on fire when he went to a Bitcoin conference and passed around notes that Grincoin was going to be the next Bitcoin. I actually believe Trace did that on purpose. The longer I go without hearing anything from Trace Mayer, the more I believe that he did that shit on purpose. Why? Maybe he was like, you know, this shit's getting so big, I might be a target. Maybe it was, maybe it was just operational security from that standpoint. Maybe he just didn't want to be expected to be at all the, the stuff. He wanted to go do other things. I don't know. But I don't, I, after listening to Bitcoin Knowledge, I listened to every single one of those podcasts before I started finding other ones. Um, I just cannot believe in my heart of hearts that Trace Mayer actually thought that Grincoin or Grin was going to be anything. I think he did what he did so that people would just forget that he exists. And if you don't know who Trace Mayer is, that's because he made you forget he exists. And that's why I think that shit was on purpose. Uh, there's a couple of other shows that I listen to. Jack Spirico's uh, The Survival Podcast. And he is now using his Tuesday show to do what's called the Bitcoin Breakout Show, which is an hour to an hour and a half to two hours long, depending of uh, talking to about Bitcoin, uh, talking to guests that are in the space. He's really coming into his own on, in the Bitcoin space. So there's a lot of stuff that I do listen to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Pitar. Again, thank you for the 50,000 sats and uh, hope to see you again on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.